Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for, for Boom. Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. Boom. Welcome to Boom. I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. And we, again, have an awesome episode for you today. We talk with Dan Lieberman, who's professor in human evolutionary biology at, Stan- at Stanford. We're from Stanford. We're at Stanford. At but <laughs> He's at Harvard. And we talk about running evolution and also some clarifications from a previous podcast he was on to just clear the air on, you know, scientific fact versus entertainment. So that was kind of interesting to talk about as well. That's what science is all about, right? Like sometimes we get some things wrong, we got to right the wrongs or at least be as right as we think we can be in the moment. And then it grows and grows. Yeah, I feel like I've been hearing that a lot too. It's what's going on in the world. Some people have made comments like, scientists say one thing one day and then say something else the next day. And it's like, well, that's basically what science is. (laughs) (laughs) When we learn new things, we go back and we clear it up. Yeah, it's worse when you don't share the new thing. (laughs) Bitter boom. Bitter boom. We have some really fun bit of boom. Actually, Dan referenced this in our interview, which you'll hear in a little bit. But he talked about this new research paper that came out about the Tarahumara Native American people. They are from Chihuahua, Mexico, and they've been long famous in the book Born to Run. They were mentioned a lot, and they're really famous for running because there's sort of this widespread mystery about how and why they can run such long distances, like hundreds of miles at a time. Yeah. Did you read Born to Run? I did. Yeah. It was really good and kind of inspiring and makes you like want to get out there and run and connect with nature. Did you or did you not try to run barefoot after you read that book? I actually, I did not try to run barefoot, but I did go longer times without replacing my running sneakers after reading that book. Because, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I also tried to run barefoot, but I tried to do it gradually in a park, but it didn't last very long. What do you mean gradually? Like you took your shoes off one foot and then... (laughs) Yeah. First, I just started running in heels and then I moved to sandals. And then flip-flops. <laughs> I just ran barefoot, but I would do like shorter, very short distances. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Did your feet get, get tougher? Well, I think if I had lasted more than a week, they probably would have. <laughs> Dan actually, yeah, has a new article and he talks about it a little bit also in the interview about like callus buildup on your feet and how that actually doesn't change your ability to proprocept. Yeah. Well, tell me about this paper. So I think similar to our episode, it's a little bit of a clarification on and sort of reframing of what our understanding might have been from some of the other resources that exist about these Native American people. 
for them, other aspects of their culture has sort of been mischaracterized by what the authors label this fallacy of the athletic savage. And that sounds intense. Yeah, I think the authors are very assertive about banishing this sort of dehumanizing notion that these people have some like kind of secret ingredient that they're a tribe of superhumans or super athletes that are sort of hidden and you know they have all these different rituals and things that make them these ultra marathoners who don't fatigue and because they eat a certain diet or they wear sandals to run or you know like they try to kind of like paint this picture other sources may try to paint this picture of these people and sort of glorify they're running in that way. It's exciting to want to grab onto that notion and be like, oh, like, I'm just not a good runner because I don't eat these things and live in a non-Westernized society. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So what did they say? Like, I guess, what is more like their truth then? So from both their team's own observations and interviews with 10 of the elderly Tarahumara runners about running during hunting and during foot races because they use it as a way of life. They use running as really a way of life and they do like to compete is what has been shown. They actually discovered that the Tarahumara running ability just derives from hard work, physically active lifestyles, determination, and something that I thought was really cool, which was spiritual and social values that they place on endurance running. Mm, Yeah, I really like that. I think I like the difference in what people are perceiving as, you know, how they're running and why versus like hearing their deeper meaning for this movement together. And I think it's important to note, like the, it's really, really important to, I think, read the whole paper and kind of see the context of their running in their culture and also to recognize like the paper says that not all of the people run and not all of them are these amazing athletes it's not like they're these this group of super people but there are select people in the in the tribe that are good runners yeah yeah definitely and this is a paper by dan lieberman and his colleagues right i don't know what did you say what journal it's yeah sorry i yep dan lieberman and his colleagues in current anthropology It's called Running in Tarahumara Culture, Persistence Hunting, Foot Racing, Dancing, Work, and the Fallacy of the Athletic Savage. Well, thanks, Hannah. I kind of on that note of how movement is amazing and can bring people together, I just read The Joy of Movement by Kelly McGonigal. And so I just wanted to share a couple facts from the book that I found interesting. Some of them I had kind of known, but... I just thought it was the book itself is just really cool and really brings home why movement is so important and how amazing our bodies are. And I don't have the citations exactly for these facts, but they're in the book, The Joy of Movement. So the first is that people who are regularly active have a stronger sense of purpose and experience more gratitude, love, and hope. The... Second one is that regular exercise remodels the physical structure of your brain to make you more receptive to joy and social connection. Also, I think there was a study where they actually reduced the amount of physical activity people were doing and they ended up having more anxiety and stress and like more difficulty sleeping. 
But even when they reduced it, their average step count per day was like 6,000. So it was still really high, but it was just less than what they were doing before. So I thought that was interesting. And then if you listen, okay, I love this one. If you listen to music while you're lying motionless in a brain scanner, your motor system will light up. Well, which means that like just hearing music makes you want to move and dance. It's like, which, yeah, connecting with our inner something, right? Our inner beat. It just like, and I feel like it's connected with that because I'm like, every time I hear a good song, you know, you're like in the grocery store and a song comes on and you just like can't you help feel but it. Of, yeah, you feel it. Um, and then for many diseases like Parkinson's and osteoarthritis, movement is the best thing you can do to delay the progression. And a lot of diseases you can even treat with movement like depression and anxiety and physical activity has shown to like treat at least as well as some of the cutting edge medicines and treatments for depression, which is pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. I love that. I love how connected we seem to be learning more and more about how connected all of our different systems are and how they really play together. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So we need to share this other fact that you sent me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should just read. Please read the, the head article headline. I'm going to read the headline and the little bit about what it says. It says, the title is Grazing Hell, 200 Escaped Goats Hoof It Through California Neighborhood. And the bit says, around 200 escaped goats stormed residential streets of San Jose, California <laughs> after breaking through a fence. The goats were rounded up and under control within minutes. But, quote, everyone had to spend the next hour or so picking up their poop, <laughs> a local resident said. And you sent that to me, and the video for that is absolutely amazing. <laughs> I wish we could show it. <laughs> yeah, just Google search right now 200 escaped goats in San Jose. And just watch and that as we it. talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> I think it also ties in really nicely. We had put a note in our sort of interview notes as we were going through the interview with Dan, as we're like listening to Dan talk about our evolutionary purposes for running and chasing down prey and things like this or outrunning prey or, and then immediately pops into my head, this article my mom sent me about the goats that escaped and all of these, you know, poor people in their neighborhood are trying to run down these goats and herd them back into a fence. You're just bringing us back to our roots. Yeah, that's true. People have talked about how quarantine has made people return to simpler pleasures and times. I meant the goats, but yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love how, like, the verbs they use, like, stormed the streets, like, these goats. <laughs> I just love the pun at the beginning, grazing hell. So intense. <laughs> I uh, love a good pun. Love a good pun. You love a good pun, that's for sure. That's for sure. It's been a while. <laughs> but just hang on, and later in the episode, you might hear some more great puns. Wow, wow, wow. You're going to want to stick around for that. <laughs> well, before the interview, why don't we just go over a couple quick fixes or clarifications that we had during the interview? Yeah, that's a new thing that we've tried to keep up because sometimes people mention some things that 
like certainly I might not know about or our listeners might not know about. So at one point, Dan talks about the Charles River and running people running out there. That's a river in Boston. I think you might even just say the Charles and that's a river in Boston that runs through and a lot of people run along it every day. Have you run through it? I have run through it or along it. Yeah. (laughs) It used to be not a not so clean river, but I think they've cleaned it up. So I wouldn't run through it. I don't know if I'd run through it today. (laughs) You wouldn't drink it? Oh, I would definitely not drink the water. I just think that should be a standard rule for any rivers that are in cities. <laughs> well, we another we also were going to clarify um, the Tara and Mara, but we talked about them already. But I just wanted to um, <laughs> we were like verifying how to pronounce them, and so I just wanted to bring this up. And I don't know if anyone can hear this, but this is the American pronunciation. Tara Humara. Just like Tara Humara, but for some reason, when I Google searched it, it came up with the British pronunciation. Tara Humara. Tara Humara. And I just wanted to include that to just confirm the fact that British people say things much prettier than Americans. We're just like Tara Humara. Tara Humara. (laughs) And it's like dancing as she says it. (laughs) It's just, I felt it in my soul. I had to, you know, dance to it. (laughs) You want to talk about the past too? Sure. We also talked about the book Born to Run by Chris McDougall. And we talked about that earlier in Boom, but we do talk about it later on. And Dan even talks about how he had the original article entitled Born to Run. And that's, Melissa, do you want to say that about our title of the episode? Oh, yeah. Born to Run Part 3, because as Dan mentions, there was an original Born to Run article, and he felt like Born to Run should be the second version. So now clarifying and and adding information to that, we are now Born to Run Part 3. So, yeah, so that's that. It's a saga. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least one every year. We might have to split four into two parts, you know, make a little bit more money, two movies. Oh, and then the last clarification was just that I think in one point, Melissa and I reacted to something Dan said about women being great endurance runners. And we weren't, we were like, oh, that's shocking. Or we said something that it, about how it was surprising, but we weren't responding to that part of his comment. We were responding to actually something else he had said earlier. So we just wanted to clarify that. <laughs> we know women are great. Yeah. And you would know that if you listen to past episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa has used running many a time in her life to her advantage. Exactly. Cool. Well, with that, let's jump into our interview. So today we're talking to Dan Lieberman, who is a professor in the Human Evolutionary Biology Department at Harvard University. And we were really inspired, Dan, after listening to your Radiolab episode titled Man Against Horse that was posted in December 2019, where you talk about many evolutionary adaptations that point to us evolving to be runners. And one being a big highlight of the episode and really emphasized was about having bigger butts or gluteus maximi. (laughs) And we were really 
Like, we need to get this guy on Boom. So we're really excited to be talking to you today. So thanks for joining us. My pleasure. <laughs> yeah, Hannah sent me the episode. She was like, one of her friends sent her the episode and was like, they talked about butts. We need to have them on. <laughs> but it was a really interesting episode. And so we're hoping to just learn more about you today. And we like to start off the episode by kind of going back a little bit at the beginning and, and when you were first interested in evolutionary biology and biomechanics. And so we'd love to hear more about when that began. Oh, gosh. Well, let's see. When I arrived at, as an undergraduate in college, I was determined to be a, um, a geologist. So I ended up taking the introductory mineralogy and crystallography course that I was told to take, which turned out to be basically memorizing crystal structures. But at the same time, I took a what's called a freshman seminar in human evolution and kind of fell in love with it and ended up doing a research project, and which we ended up publishing and kind of just fell in love with the field of, of human evolutionary biology and anthropology and started also doing archaeology and fieldwork and before I knew it, I was waylaid by that, and, and I was also interested in being a pre-med, and you know, one thing led to another, and before I knew it, I was in graduate school. So, <laughs> Just all flash by. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what it was that gave you that spark, that just like gravitation towards evolutionary biology when you were introduced to it? Well, I think there, was, there wasn't just one spark, but I think I could... You know, part of it is I just fell in love with a theory of, of natural selection and Darwin's hmm. grand theory. It's such a compelling profound way of looking at the world. And once you start using that lens, it sort of changes how you think about everything. And I also love field work and I love traveling. And so I liked going to digging in various archaeological sites and stuff. That was fun as, a, as an undergraduate. And I also had the opportunity to work with a wonderful professor named David Pilbeam, who, who got me writing some papers and then my senior honors thesis. We ended up publishing and then I, I got a fellowship to go spend a year in England where I got to do more of the stuff and ended up in Kenya. And, you know, it just kind of, it was fun. Wow. And, but also I think at a basic level, I also feel like, you know, evolutionary thinking and evolutionary data are really profoundly important for our world. And as I've gone on in the field, I've become more and more passionate about something that we call evolutionary medicine, but how to apply evol evolutionary theory and data to health the disease. So in a, in a way I've kind of come full, full circle back to my original pre-med inclinations to work on how evolution relates to health and disease with regards to the musculoskeletal system. That's so interesting. I actually just wanted to quickly ask you, you talked about going to sites and we're pretty far disconnected from archaeology, I think, in our city. So we are wondering like, what the most exciting find you've had at a site. Oh, like digging stuff up? I have to confess <laughs> yes. that. I, you know, I, I did a joint PhD in archaeology and, and biological anthropology, and I don't really do archaeology anymore, but partly because okay. I wasn't very good at it. You spend hours and hours and hours, days, weeks, months digging, and you have to just get lucky. And so I found lots of stone tools and animal bones and, and things like that, but I never, I never hit like, you know, a really... I never found anything super exciting, at least nothing that would sound very good on the air. So... <laughs> But I did enjoy myself, but I'm really interested in people and, and, and how and why we are the way we are and how that why that matters. And so as my career went on, I became more interested in studying how, you know, studying people who aren't like me and live in, you know, a, a big Western city and drive around in my car and eat breakfast cereal out of a box. I was interested in, in how other people use their bodies. And so in my lab, we sort of integrate biomechanics in the labs. We do experimental experimental biomechanics and physiology. 
We also sometimes do some work on animals, but we also study fossils and go to the field and, and look at how other people use their body and bodies in very different contexts. So that's really where I've, I've turned my fieldwork efforts. That's awesome. So you mentioned like being able to use all of these different paradigms to get at the research questions you're asking and trying to understand how and why the human body is the way it is. Can you just tell us a little bit more how you actually connect the experiments that you're doing in the lab with the evolutionary theories and field work and other things you're doing looking at the fossil record to try to explain why we're evolving the way we are or why we are the way we are? It's sort of human nature to think the world around us is normal, right? You know, we think it's normal <laughs> to, to wear shoes and to drive around in cars and fly in airplanes and sit in chairs all day long staring at computers. I mean, at some level, we know that's modern, but we, we think our lives are, are normal. And yet, from an evolutionary perspective, the way most of us in the West lead our lives is very different from how most people on the rest of the planet lead their lives and how our ancestors lived. And so what we do is we, we combine really fieldwork and lab work in two different ways. So one is in the field, we want to see what people do. How do they sit and how do they carry and how do they stand and how they look out and how do they run when they're not wearing shoes or don't have chairs or you know all the things that that fill our lives and we try to we try to take measurements as much as possible and then back in the lab and we bring the lab to the field but we also do a lot of lab work back at harvard where we try to test models you know we devise biomechanical models for how we carry things or how the gluteus maximus functions or how the arch of the foot functions and, and we try to test these things as much in the field as well as possible, although we can't, we can't do as sophisticated uh, experiments in the field as we can do back at home. So we, we sort of try to combine these different methods and these different participant populations to derive and test models of how the human body works. So to give an example, like we do a lot of work on feet. We, we work on the human body, really, the evolution of physical activity from the head to the toe. And a lot of the work in my lab has been on feet. And almost all research until recently on feet was, was done on college students in America, and when occasionally <laughs> they, they ask people to take to look at barefoot function, they would just ask people to take their shoes off. But people who wear shoes most of the time and just ask to take their shoes off in the lab are not the same thing. They don't have the same feet as people who've never worn a shoe in their life. So, for example, we're interested in how shoes affect foot strength and foot function and the muscles in the feet. And to do that, you can't do that easily in, in a lab in Cambridge or Palo Alto. You need to go to places like Kenya or Mexico where, where we work. Yeah, that's so interesting because like barefoot running has become a big fad, but then people are complaining about getting injuries, but it's, you know, people have worn shoes their whole life and then they take them off and try to run long distances and our bodies just aren't equipped for that. Yeah, I call that born to run syndrome. Born to run syndrome, but yeah, from the book. Yeah, yeah they read the book. Well, you know, the thing about that book is that, you know, we published paper in Nature in 2004. Dennis Bramble and I published a paper in Nature in 2004, and the cover of Nature was Born to Run. And fellow Chris McDougall contacted us after the paper came out and more or less invited himself to the lab, and he came to the lab, and that's, I think that was really, in large part, the origins of the book, Born to Run. By the way, he never mentioned that our paper in Nature was entitled Born to Run, but of course, we stole that from, <laughs> stole that from Bruce Springsteen, so I guess... <laughs> We didn't credit Bruce Springsteen, so I guess that's fine. But so <laughs> soon after we published that 2004 paper, we started studying barefoot running. Because, of course, if we evolved to run long distances, we also evolved to run them barefoot, because shoes are a recent invention. So we started being interested in how the foot functions when it's barefoot and how people run differently when they're barefoot versus 
Sean, and and then that led to work on the biomechanics of impact and sort of momentum balance equations and all kinds of fun stuff. But it got popularized by that book, Born to Run, which more or less made the, the completely crazy suggestion that if you take off your shoes, you'll automatically become a great runner like the Tarahumara, who, by the way, don't run barefoot most of the time. But anyway, that's a that's another issue. But- <laughs> But they do get really drunk before they <laughs> run, right? Well, no, that's not really true either. There's, you shouldn't believe anything in that book. The book is full of misconceptions. Oh, I should stop doing that, I guess, then. <laughs> we just published a paper that's in the journal Current Anthropology. It's open access that, about running in Taramara culture to try to kind of set the record straight. I recommend, if you're interested in the real story about Taramara running, reading that. I mean, they do occasionally drink, but they don't get roaring drunk before they... No, but you can't run a, an ultramarathon roaring drunk. That's not possible. <laughs> anyway. Born to run syndrome. So the way in which, you know, science is often conveyed to the public is to make it as exciting as possible and to kind of avoid nuance. And the way barefoot running was sold was that it was like a, a free coach, like magically make you a better runner. And I think people shouldn't be scared of barefoot running. You can do it just safely and fine. And people have been doing it for millions of years. But if you've never been running barefoot before and you don't have the strength in your calf muscles and you don't know the how to run properly, because I think running is a skill, and you can kind of get away with bad running in a shoe because it protects you in various ways. But if you suddenly just you know throw away your shoes and start running barefoot, of course you're going to get injured. That was kind of an unfortunate consequence of the sort of the way in which it was uh, portrayed by the media, despite my efforts. But there we are. Yeah, it's been interesting because as we've been like in quarantine during the coronavirus, I've been doing workouts barefoot, and I noticed some foot pain, and I was just like, well, it's probably because I usually work out with shoes on. So I find this like particularly relevant right now. (laughs) Yeah, when your feet aren't happy, you're not happy. Yeah, that's very true. (laughs) Melissa, it's funny you say that because my roommate and I had to go grocery shopping last night and she was putting her shoes on and she was like, wow, I haven't put shoes on in three days. It feels so weird to, (laughs) yeah, like have to put shoes on. And I was like, wow. That's amazing. <laughs> well, one of my favorite moments, and you know, I sometimes like to run barefoot in, around here, and there's a little street that I often run along to get to the Charles River. I remember one morning I was running barefoot, and there's a woman who I often see, work, she, she has two beautiful dogs, and I often see her early in the morning. You know how everybody has their certain schedule, and you know, kind of keep seeing the same people over and over again. And one morning when I was running by her, she said to me as I was going by, she said, you're barefoot. And I, without thinking, I don't know, some part of my brain just like replied, your dogs are barefoot too. And and the look of horror on her face, and you could see her look at her dogs like, oh my God, my dogs are barefoot. But, you know, we have this sort of bizarre attitude towards our bodies that somehow we, a lot of people are scared of being barefoot. And I think that being barefoot is somehow abnormal or strange. And, And actually, that's one of the reasons why we published that paper. I don't know if you saw the paper that we had in Nature this summer on barefoot walking, on calluses, because as as somebody who likes to go barefoot, I I realized that I could run along the streets of Cambridge, and I could land on a pebble or something like that, and I could feel it without it hurting me. But I never felt like, as my calluses got thicker over the course of the summer, that I had any loss of sensory function. And it suddenly occurred to me that, you know, when you wear a shoe, of course, you lose sensory input. You lose all that exterior reception that that you get on on the ground. But, you know, dogs and and humans and all the other animals that were barefoot have a totally different sensory system that when you have a callus, the callus is very, very dense. It's very anhydrous. The sensory nerves, the Purkinje and Meisner corpuscles are just below it. 
and actually it transmits the forces right through the keratin right to those sensory fibers. And so we actually did a study in Kenya showing that that people who were barefoot, of course, had thicker calluses, but there was no trade-off the way there is in a shoe between callus thickness and callus hardness and sensory perception. So in some ways, you know, we, we pay a price for being barefoot. Wow, that's crazy because I'm actually <laughs> I'm actually a climber and I did see a picture of you guys kind of poking and holding people's feet on your website about this article. And I was thinking about it because I'm a climber and I get pretty thick calluses on my hands. And sometimes I do feel like I wonder if it's decreasing some, you know, sensory abilities in my fingers and things like that. If I touch a hot pan or something like that, I'm like, oh, I wonder if I feel this less than I did before. Yeah, but probably not. But just think about guitar players or, you know, violin True. players. Yeah. I mean, they, they develop calluses on their fingers, but that doesn't, they have no loss of sensory perception. But if you're doing martial arts, you definitely don't want to be barefoot. Um, you don't want to be wearing a shoe because you just can't feel the ground as well and you you lose reaction time. So people who do martial arts are always barefoot. Yeah, that's really amazing. And it makes me think of like back when I was a kid and used to walk around barefoot like all the time and my feet would be so tough. But you're right. I probably, if we totally were losing perception, then we wouldn't be able to, you know, maintain the same kinematics or stability or natural selection would have eliminated people who lost sensory perception for calluses because remember not having a callus is abnormal and humans who have calluses are just like animals who have calluses are normal my dog walks around all over the place with calluses and she's just fine. <laughs> uh, the only time that it's a problem for her is in the middle of the winter when people salt the streets too much which is a problem you don't have in california Oof. and then sometimes i have to pick her up <laughs> but that's the only time it's a problem for her so still on the subject of of running and locomotion. We actually did see your 2004 article, the Born to Run article, that's entitled Endurance Running and the Evolution of Homo. And in the article, you talk about different theories for why we started running. You sort of closed the article with that, saying that it was mainly to access protein-rich sources like meat, marrow, and brain. And then you go on to mention two theories. One theory that running allowed us to track big animals like wildebeest to exhaustion and another theory that we were scavengers running to beat out the vultures and the other scavengers to the fresh meat sources. So I think our question was, do you have comments on these theories and what evidence we might have to suggest which or both possibly were more likely to be our hunting strategy? I'm glad you asked that question because one of the things that really ticked me off about the Radiolab episode is that they kind of implied that Dennis Bramble and I have a dis difference of opinion about this, and we don't. We both believe that probably what happened was the initial evolution of endurance running was for scavenging. Mm -hmm. After all, you can't just suddenly become a carnivore if you're a primate. You have to probably you probably went through an intermediate scavenging stage, and then later on, that was probably the initial advantage for running long distances because if you see, say, vultures in the distance, you know that underneath those vultures will be a carcass. And if you don't get there quickly, uh, there's going to be nothing left. And you have an advantage if you could run in the middle of the day when it's hot and other animals can't run. So we think that the initial evolution for endurance running probably started with scavenging and then, and then hunting was then added. You know, there's different ways of hunting. And one is this method called persistence hunting where you, where you run an animal into a state of heat stroke. But we've also documented how humans around the world use running in other ways. They run animals into traps, they run animals into blinds, they run animals into, into natural traps like bogs, over cliffs, who knows, you know, all kinds of different ways. But you can't walk an animal to death, you have to run it. And, and so pretty much all these different methods of hunting, but also scavenging require running. So we think scavenging went first, 
humans never stopped being scavengers. Uh, Hunter-gatherers today still scavenge whenever they can, just like lions scavenge whenever they can. But we also probably added hunting. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. We like to keep everyone happy on Boom, so I'm glad we (laughs) got to talk about that. And I was kind of curious as you were talking about that, if there are differences as you've been kind of observing these different ways of hunting I was wondering is it mostly just like men that you're studying or are there like some types of yeah evolutionary like gender differences in men and women like because of that yeah I was just kind of curious about that well obviously women can run just as well as men in fact the longer the distance the the difference between men and women sort of disappears but you know we know from studying hunter-gatherers that for the most part hunting is done mostly by men. There's a division of labor in most hunting and gathering societies. But there are ethnographic examples of women also running and and doing this kind of thing. There's a, I don't know if you know the book Nisa. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. It's kind of a, uh, the life story of a Kungsan hunter-gatherer in the Kalahari who tells her life story to a woman named Marjorie Shostak, but more or less just wrote it down. And in the book Nisa, she describes, for example, two cases where she ran to get meat. Once was she came across a, a, a juvenile wildebeest and she ran it down, like persistence hunt, when she, was a, when she was a young woman. And another time when she came across a dead animal and, and ran back to camp to make sure that everybody knew about this dead animal so they could run back to get it before the hyenas did. So long distance running would have benefited both men and women, but for the sake of scavenging and hunting, it was probably done more often by men than women simply based on what we know about the ethnographic record. But obviously, uh, it's done by, by both. And, and if you go to traditional societies, women often run. So, for example, among the Taramara, you know, the men of this famous Rara Hippri, this long-distance kicking race, but the women have a, have a race called an Aruete, where, where they also run almost a marathon-length distance. The difference is that the women tend to stop racing these Aruete once they get married and start having kids whereas the men continue to do the Rara Hippri up until their 70s or 80s sometimes. That's amazing. That's so interesting. Well, I mean, you go out and go for a jog in Palo Alto or Cambridge, you're going to see as many women as men, right? It's not, it shouldn't be that surprising. Remember, the world that we live in is kind of weird, right? But in some ways, it's not entirely weird. And the fact that women and men both enjoy running and are good at it tells us something. It's true. Although I feel like there was a period in which women were not running Oh, tell me about it. My mother. Yeah. yeah. So that's why I'm kind of like, we're coming back to it. Like, Yeah, one of the reasons I started, I've always been interested in running, I think it's because of my mother. So my, my mother was a professor at the University of Connecticut when I was a kid, and they, they built this fancy field house and they wouldn't let women use it. And so my mother started running to liberate the field house. This was back in 1969. So it's long before the runners running boom even started, the jogging boom. And she, she hated it, but she did it because it was a way to liberate the field house. But she got addicted, and then she basically she's now in her mid-80s, and she still exercises every day. She kind of damaged her knee, so she doesn't run anymore, but she goes to the gym every day. But she ran every, you know, five miles every day for you know, 40, 50 years or something like that. It's something that we need to treasure that. Uh, that's important. Totally. And I think that it's really nice. We did an episode with Kara Wall-Scheffler and talked a lot about like, some of the gender and evolutionary adaptations that were happening in the different genders and and, in parallel. So I think we would like to go to one of my favorite questions, which is, could you tell us about a time that you had a research fail or that could also be a time where you were really surprised by something and you were really thinking one thing, but then were surprised to find something else? 
Could you tell us about one of those times? Oh, gosh. I mean, I've had so many failed experiments, I can't even remember them all. I mean, <laughs> I mean that's the nature of doing research is to, is to try things out and, and get things wrong and then, to, then try to figure out what's, why you were wrong. God, there's so many. I'm trying to figure. I'm trying. I'm struggling now to think of like like the best one. <laughs> That's what everybody says, but you don't need the best one. <laughs> you just need. It's like it's so funny. Even when people are talking about their fails, they want to optimize. <laughs> well, I'll give you an example. We we actually here here's 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 a big one. So we had a paper that was actually accepted in the journal Science. Uh, well, it was almost accepted. You know, the, we were basically doing the revisions for a paper on on how we stabilize our heads, and it was a very exciting paper and. And the reviewers liked it, and, and we were basically tinkering with the reviews. And then, then we, was, we were sort of analyzing some of the data. We realized that we had the story wrong. That when we analyzed, when we looked at some other mechanisms for head stabilization, that they kind of disproved our hypothesis. Um, and yet, we had this paper accepted in the journal Science. And um, fortunately, I had tenure. I, you know, I didn't need this paper to you know advance my career or anything like that. And you know, you just can't publish something that you know is wrong. So we pulled the paper, and, and we're actually just now publishing a set of experiments that kind of are built upon that. Or another example, I published once a paper about the cranial evolution in which we got something wrong. And I ended up publishing a paper with the people who, who, who ended up pointing out my error and you know, ended up learning a lot about how, how skulls grow. So, I mean, if you're not open to admitting you're wrong and, and uh, moving forward, it's kind of a sad way to do science. Unfortunately, there are people who just, you know, once they have an idea, they stick to it. And even when when people point out that there are errors, and you know, science is all about being wrong. You can never be right in science. You can only be wrong. If you're not willing to be wrong, you shouldn't be a scientist. That's so true. And I remember listening to a professor uh, my first year at Stanford, and he said, I hope one day that all of my science is proven wrong, because that means that uh, science has advanced enough to have a deeper understanding and, and prove things wrong that we think we know right now. And so I think it is vital for the continued improvement of science and advancement in, in research to be able to accept times that you are wrong and learn from them and yeah, just kind of improve what we know. So we have one more question for you and we're wondering what you're most excited about for the future of evolutionary biology or biomechanics. Well, I've been interested in this, in a, an emerging field called evolutionary medicine. You know, I think so much of what we do in, in evolutionary biology, or for that matter in biomechanics, is try to figure out, you know, how things are, why, you know, why things are the way they are. But I think we often don't think about how and why they're relevant to most people. You know, you go to big conferences, particularly for evolutionary biomechanics, and, you know, they're, you know, really cool papers about how grasshoppers do this and how fish do that. And, you know, it's really fun to see all the creative, exciting innovative science that's going on, you know, to figure out how the world is. And, and I'm glad that happens. But we also have a lot of serious fundamental problems. We have terrible rates of, of morbidity. People are, are sick. They have arthritis and, and knee pain and flat feet. And, you know, the list is very, very long. And I firmly believe that we're not going to be able to solve a lot of these problems without an evolutionary perspective. Because too often, in the medical world, we treat uh, the symptoms of problems rather than their causes. And if you really want to understand the causes of a problem, you need to understand why it occurs in the first place. And so that's where I think evolution, integrating evolution with biomechanics and physiology is so important because it helps us address those why questions mm -hmm. that we need in order to prevent diseases rather than simply treat it. Yeah, that, that makes so much sense. Like we've 
we're supposed to be learning from history, learning from our past. Seems like, yeah, that hasn't really fully taken off. So I'm glad that you you said that. And that's the first time we've ever had that answer to that question. So so thank you for sharing your perspectives. And, and thank you just for sharing all your experiences and wisdom and a lot of really great clarifications for our listeners on some different things today. Since you were talking about the man against horse race, can I, can I make one more clarification? Yes, please. <laughs> so on that podcast, which was very charming and it was well done and I enjoyed listening to it. But the, you know, the one thing that I really uh, was astonished by it was they kind of made it seem like the test of the hypothesis was whether or not somebody could beat the horses, right? Mm-hmm. Like in the year that I ran it, there were, I think, 41 runners and 53 horses. And they were kind of implying that the test of our hypothesis was that if a man or woman didn't beat the horses, then, then the theory was wrong. But, you know, if you're hunting horses, which hopefully nobody does, but anyway, if you're hunting animals, <laughs> you only have to beat one of them. You don't have to beat them all. You don't have to beat all of them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so they kind of made it like, oh, my God, for the first time ever, I've got for, you know, and, and it's like, finally, so proof of the endurance running hypothesis. And that's just like nonsense. The year I ran it, like, I'm a middle-aged professor, right? I'm not a particularly great runner. I like to run marathons, and I'm just barely able to qualify for Boston, but I'm never going to win anything, right? But even the year I ran it, I beat all but 13 of the horses. I beat 40-something horses. So wow. right, this shows that a, an average mediocre, and that's and the horses get a rest stop, and I don't, where they, and they get that time subtracted. So they, you know, during the race, the horses get stopped, and they get their temperature and their heart rate checked, et cetera, and nobody stops me. And uh, so they get like a little bit of a race, a uh, rest during the race. So I beat, I beat all those horses, even though the horses got a break and I didn't. And so these races, the, the horses that are running are, you know, competitive horses, but no first rate runner ever runs those. You know, you're never going to get Elliot Kipchoge or some great marathoner is going to, going to race one of these things. So you had a really great marathoner running against these horses, but no contest. So you only have to beat one of them in order to in order to do a persistence hunt. And so I think that they kind of missed that boat in the in the episode. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think like some of the articles even were like, oh, finally he gets to eat. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I was just gonna ask why you think it's so surprising that people don't expect humans to be able to beat horses. Because we're so out of touch with our bodies. People don't understand how their bodies work. And people are out of touch with the animal world too. I mean, you know, most people even if they've been to Africa, they mostly see it inside a jeep in the Serengeti as a tourist. You know, you know, most of us lead very sheltered lives that are detached from nature, and we don't understand how our bodies work, and we don't understand how other animals work. And so, and the end result is that we we have a very limited experience. And also, we tend to focus in terms of athletics. We tend to focus on elite athletes, and the elite athletics that we tend to focus on are don't tend to be the ones that really mattered in evolution. You know, we're interested in people who are the strongest and the fastest and jump the highest. And but that's not what evolution cared about. Evolution cared about you know walking long distances at a very modest pace, carrying stuff, and not getting injured. That's what we're selected for. And the average human being is remarkable in that regard compared to other animals. We're efficient walkers, and we can walk long distances, and we can carry all kinds of stuff very effectively. And we can run long distances slowly, not rapidly. But we don't think of that as being important. We think of how fast you can run the 100-meter dash or, you know, Elliot Kipchoge breaking two hours in a marathon. I mean, nobody in the Paleolithic ever stood on one line and tried to run as fast as possible (laughs) for 26.2 miles without stopping to another line. Why would that be of any use to anyone? It's not what we evolved for. That's so true. I have one more question. I was curious if after 
this research that you've done and everything that you've learned, how, how has it influenced your life? Like, has it changed your behaviors and how you go about living your life? Oh, gosh. <laughs> it's impossible to do what I do without thinking about that all the time. So I, you know, I've become very, I, I love now minimal shoes. Uh, when we started barefoot running, started studying barefoot running, I started trying it because I feel like I should try what I study. And I ended up not only really liking it, but also really finding that I couldn't stand conventional shoes with arch supports and big heels. So that changed the kind of shoes I wear. I've been certainly more careful about how much I sit and you know, I have a standing desk and things like that. I, I certainly um, changed the way I eat. I never take the elevator anymore, except maybe when, I mean, I always want to take the elevator. I mean, I'd love to, every time, my office is on the fifth floor <laughs> of the Peabody Museum. So you've ever. changed your behaviors, but not necessarily how you think. <laughs> well, sure, because I, mean, I study the evolution of physical activity, and I'm constantly talking about the benefits of being physically active. And if anybody saw me take the elevator, I'd be a hypocrite, right? Right. So it's not that I don't want to take the elevator, but I found it actually a very powerful incentive not to take the elevator because... I'll get called out. So I ended up, you know, taking the stairs more. And I, so yeah, there's all kinds of ways from dawn till dusk that's changed how I live. But I also, I'm not a paleo fantasist. I don't, you know, I don't believe in a paleo diet. I don't, you know, try to live like a caveman or I'm not fetishized the, the paleolithic. And just because something is old doesn't mean it's good. And just because something's new doesn't mean it's bad. But I, I'd like to try to question what I do and try to think about why I do what I do and, and be aware of the fact that there are many other ways to use your body. But I think the, for me, the most important thing is I'm now in my 50s, right? And as the more I study the evolution of physical activity, the more I realize how important it is to stay physically active as we age. You know, humans evolved to be physically active, but we also especially evolved to be physically active as we get older. And if you drop out of physical activity as you age, there are serious, serious price to pay. So that's become, I'm sort of hyper aware of that. I just wanted to say, yeah, thank you so much for being on today and sharing all those different stories and perspectives and really interesting things about, I think, especially in this time, talking about exercise and how that's, and all these learnings, how they relate to our health and what we can learn from our evolution. Yeah, especially when we're quarantined. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we can learn not to just sit in a chair and work at our computer and never move <laughs> for the whole day. My pleasure. Thank you, Dan. All right, take care. Wow. That was just an incredible interview. I feel like we really had a lot of kind of banter going back and forth. It was really a great environment. We did lose Melissa at one point in there, which was really just frustrating technologically, but we got her back and we ended up having just an amazing time. Yeah. It wasn't the first time that happened. So... Why don't we jump into research fails so we can talk more about that? <laughs> research fails. Yes, it does. So just a little bit of context for this research fail. Melissa and I, since we're remote and obviously not in the same room, we keep this Google Doc open so that we can kind of communicate back and forth and know what questions are coming up in the interview but sometimes sometimes we just have a little bit of a side conversation to reorient ourselves and figure mm -hmm. out who's going to talk next yeah we don't I mean I was going to say we don't just naturally have this flow 
but that wouldn't exactly be true. But we do try to keep ourselves organized. <laughs> because we do naturally have a connection that no one will ever understand. <laughs> Yes, correct. But also it's hard when my computer is lagging on Google Docs too. So like we're also both typing at the, we're both talking at the same time and then typing at the same time to tell the other person to go. Anyways. Sorry. So we're going back to look at the notes from this interview to see what ideas we had for a bit of boom. And then we just like came across this conversation that we had. So we're just going to read it. So sorry, haha. I got this, lol. Can you wrap this up <laughs> so I don't keep censored? Messing everything up, please? It's not you, it's me, lol. But yeah, I'll wrap. Uh, giving him 30 more seconds. Actually, I want to ask if he has changed his life at all. Go for it. Okay, thanks. <laughs> sorry, I am so bad at not talking. I'm asking the next question, lol. Yeah, I'm not going to talk anymore. Oh, I muted myself, lol. You're... Oh, that was you. <laughs> you want to just wrap us up, too? Sure, I lost connection, at sign, at sign. <laughs> Are you still there? <laughs> Can you finish the episode? Yep, we're good. <laughs> uh, do you want me to keep the window open so I can get your audio? Are you trying to rejoin? My internet won't work, so no. <laughs> oh, no, do you have it on your phone? Needless to say, I didn't have it on my phone. And Melissa but eventually came back. <laughs> yeah, once the episode was in front. <laughs> so that was a mess. And on that note, that happened two weeks ago when I was presenting at lab meeting. So that was frustrating. <laughs> you know what's about to happen? It like, it like gives you a warning because you're like talking and then all of a sudden everyone freezes. And you're like, oh no, <laughs> here it goes. <laughs> and I came back up and then Hannah, Hannah so sweetly like opened my presentation on her computer and then gave me control of her computer. So that was very kind. <laughs> it was great. It was really great because I don't know if you could tell this Melissa, but everyone was just like silent. Like everyone was just waiting and waited in silence for a solid minute. <laughs> like, <laughs> not knowing what to do <laughs> i like to leave everyone hanging <laughs> it was an amazing presentation even though technology was not on your side that day <laughs> i appreciate that all right so i think that's all we have for fails today technology is hard people but have some fun with it yeah well speaking of having fun with technology today <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't even believe talking about this. <laughs> Jerome, as I don't know, I can't I pronounce his last name. I'm an idiot. Jerome Alels, Ailes, Jerome, we're sorry, but we're just going to go with it. So today, Jerome Alels posted a question on Twitter asking if you were to start a band and give it an original science name related to your work, what would it be? And it just led to the most hilarious thread. And I was kind of going back and forth with him and Martino Franchi. And now they've offered to host an official episode for movie and song puns related to biomechanics. But just to give a quick teaser, I feel like I should read one of the examples that he, he posted a long 
It was so funny. Well, he posted some movie puns. Charlie and the Prosthetic Factory. And, I mean, he posted a bunch. And Force Busters. I think those were just a couple of my favorites. I don't want to read them all because they're so funny. You need to check it out yourself or wait for our special pun episode. I can't wait for that episode. That's, like, basically better than my Christmas. Do you have any? So they asked us. So mine, I had a couple ideas from my research. Let's see. Computer visions of you. (laughs) I call. Psychol me, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta get that psychology work in there. You gotta get that in there. Living in the knee adduction moment. (laughs) That's all I'll give you. Myself and even more. (laughs) I don't have any prepared. Walk it like it's hot. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. All right. Well, that's our sneak peek. (laughs) I can't wait. It's going to be great. Well, thank you for listening to the episode. As always, we wanted to thank the International Society of Biomechanics for sponsoring Boom and also thanking Peter Washington for all of the amazing music. Yeah, we have amazing supporters and fans. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you'd like to submit a research fail, person interview, get involved in some way in the podcast or host your own student voices episode, please email us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com or tweet us and follow us on Twitter at biomechanicsoom. Yeah, or you can send us all of your punny songs and movie ideas about biomechanics and we'll feature them on our special episode. Well, I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. Biomechanics off our minds. (laughs) 